Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. For the first time in the series, I'm interviewing a member of my family, Sieng Saramula. Sieng has over 10 years experience conducting social, economic, and environmental impact assessments and livelihood enhancements of projects which protect the rights of vulnerable communities, indigenous people, people living with disabilities, minority tribes, and those affected by climate change, and proposed projects in the energy, transport, water, human rights, conservation, and environmental education in Southern Africa. Key experiences in her field of research are project monitoring and evaluation, data collection and analysis, disaster risk preparedness, response and recovery training, as well as renewable energy-based solutions. Sarah, otherwise known as Sieng, welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Fakadi Shila, for this warm welcome. And I look forward to our interaction during this podcast. That's wonderful. So I wanted to learn from you, but also to share your knowledge with the Shilakama Extractive Podcast listeners by starting fundamentally with you defining for us the concept of social safeguards. The concept of social safeguards refers really to policies, um, procedures, and measures that are intended to identify potential risks and impacts both positive or negative, um, and where the, these are potentially negative risks and impacts, um, identify how to prevent them. Uh, where prevention is not possible, how do we reduce, how do we mitigate, or how do we compensate uh, for unintended negative impacts from development projects? Where positive impacts are identified, like a creation of employment for local community, um, as an example, um, um, social safeguards ensure imp the implant implementer follows national guidelines and or frameworks included in the project operations manual to ensure that there's fair and transparent recruitment of local people, there's fair pay, there's protection of human rights, protection from potential occupational hazards during the pre-construction, construction, operations, and decommissioning of a of a project or of of an infrastructure. So I, I I like that social safeguard concepts don't presume that there will be harm only, but recognizes that projects also can have a positive impact because the assumption is that if you safeguard, then you're safeguarding against risk. So speaking of this social safeguard, what are some of the key social environmental vulnerabilities that social safeguards seek to, to specifically identify? Um, we usually break them into environmental vulnerabilities and then social vulnerabilities. As much as they marry, we want to always show um, how each impact the environment and how the other in, impacts livelihood. So I'll start with environmental um, vulnerabilities associated with, with, um, with infrastructure development. 
Um, they're not limited, but they include greenhouse gas emissions, land use change, damage of uh, biodiversity and ecosystems, use of limited raw materials um, and, and resources, uh, air, water, soil, noise pollution. In the case of Botswana, looking at our large tourism sector, I would identify fragmentation and destruction of forests and habits interruption of wildlife, migration routes, or what we call corridors. Um, looking at the fact that we're a water-strained country, I would look at, I would identify drainage of freshwater as a vulnerability, depletion of aquifers, erosion and pollution of land, to mention a few. And on the social side, um, we look at loss of livelihoods, uh, disruption of social or community cohesion, exclusion of vulnerable communities, including women, economic displacement, land acquisition, which may result in displacement or relocation away from economically viable geographical locations due to a project or an infrastructure, and then labor and human rights violation. So really it's a whole uh, gambit of issues. Now, from a mining oil and gas point of view, uh, when project sponsors contemplate a development, Typically, we would carry out what is called an environmental impact assessment study, which also includes the physical and the social uh, environment. And, and, and I spoke to somebody on that subject, but what isn't clear to me saying is, what is the difference between your science uh, or the study that you would undertake and the environmental impact assessment study? Um, so what we have been finding usually is that we have the national legislations and they tend to call it the EIA or the Environmental Impact Assessment. And they would incorporate a social safeguard section within that. But already, as you can hear just from that wording of the legislation, the Environmental Impact Assessment, it tends to leave the social Right, so when we abbreviate it, it is it becomes EIA, but realistically it should be ESIA, because it looks at both environmental and social risks um, in identifying them. So, I would say as much as in the mining and um, in the gas industries, we tend to call it, or let me just say in generally infrastructure development, it it tends to be the EIA legislation. It incorporates the social, although a little hidden. <laughs> I always have a problem with this. I'm, I'm glad you're asking this question. So in, in my work, what we have done is really cultivated or brought forward the word social. Um, and this is why I do work with um, international funding organizations such as the World Bank, because the S or the social, is really in the front and equally recognized as the environment. So their preparation of documents now becomes the environment and social impact assessment. And from that assessment, you identify potential impacts of a project, especially if it's infrastructure project, and then a preparation of an environmental and social management plan is then put together when, once you've identified the potential impacts, what are the potential mitigation measures that you're then putting into place? On the social side, it really looks at safeguarding 
the livelihood of the communities where that infrastructure is going to be uh, imp um, constructed. So at, if you're at, putting, uh -huh, please go through. Sure. No, uh, I was going to say that uh, you are right to recognize that laws can be limited because then they call more for compliance where if you are open-minded enough to just go in there and investigate, the possibility is that you will find issues that are not necessarily provided for in law. But also that, Absolutely. you know, typically we we started off the, the this notion of environment started off with a focus on the physical, which is why the Sheila Kamen Extractive Podcast thought it necessary in to really unbundle the ESG space and dig into the, the social space because few people recognize the fragility if you wish, of that uh, environment. That, that's what I was, I was going to acknowledge the importance of emphasizing the S. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me, let me ask you something else. So um, when we think of social safeguards, from my understanding of what you're saying, it's not so much about mining oil and gas projects. It's really about the infrastructure around uh, that and it can be also infrastructure that has nothing to do with extractives. But the the question I have for you is saying is this: normally, when we contemplate building in some form of infrastructure, the the very idea of infrastructure is that we improve people's lives, we give them access through roads, we give them access to water through dams. Where is the disconnect between the desire? to do good and the harm that can come out of that despite intentions? It's usually at, I think also, it's at, um, now it's it, things have changed a little bit. You know, we're at a point in development that we cannot um, put together from from design stage, we cannot look or ignore the matrix of development to not have identified environment and social risk factors. Like you were saying, it be extractives, it be industrialization, every infra infrastructure development investment portfolio, which use, uses high amounts of raw materials and resources, uh, additionally consumes high electricity and uses high quantities of wa water, should be analyzed and valued with environment and social safeguards inclusion and mitigation measure protocols considered right at the beginning. Um, by safeguarding the environment and the livelihood of the people at design stage of projects and costing these measures into the investment portfolio is not only sustainability in the operations of these developments that is gained by a, a saving in income to the developer where measures are in place to prevent accidents or incidents and grievances, which cost much more than preventative measures to the developer when they occur. So we tend to... In the past, we tended to say, okay, we'll deal with the program, with the pro problem when it occurs. And over time, we've realized that that cost is much more than had we prevented or put those measures in place at the design stage. Now developers are realizing when there is an actual incident or an accident and there's a loss of life or there's um, a huge impact and loss of 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 
by, of, of um, habitat that cost um, and not only is it monetary, is it at, uh, valued at, at, at financial loss, but it's a loss at um, politically because that's a, a now it's on the on the leaders, uh, the communities, how they look at the leaders, the, the quality of the projects or the developments that they that they bring to them. The problem is on the enforcement of those measures from design stage to to implementation. So this is really why, um, you know, looking at safeguards, we don't only look at extractives, but we look at at infrastructure development in totality. Hmm. So uh, it's it's interesting. I I like your nuance because what you're saying is one. It costs not to get it right on the onset because typically the cost, uh, the post uh, damage cost is greater. But if you upfront ensure that these accidents don't occur, you save money. Uh, first of all, you, you save in your insurance premium because they, the claims are not as much. Secondly, you save because there's no disruption of work. And so productivity and efficiency is translating to finance. That I can understand. What I hadn't reckoned with is that, of course, there's also a loss of political capital, which is to say, if the communities are unhappy, the leaders look bad, and therefore, they potentially is a political fallout, that when we really follow through on these social safeguards, Everybody wins, whichever way you look at it, because everybody comes out uh, on the right side. But you you also mentioned the notion of uh, enforcement, that there's some challenges relating to enforcement, even when we have made the right uh, assessment. Can you talk a little about some of the challenges that uh, relate to the need to enforce our findings and conclusions? Um, enforcement is one that is really difficult. I think, especially at national level, um, I find that, and I'll, I'll maybe let me break them down to the, the different, the three ways I see, I see them intertwining. At government or at national level, we need to strengthen I would say safeguard systems and legislation um, and increase government supervision and monitoring of contractors who are awarded construction bids. Um, there has to be a cost calculation to mitigate potential impacts post-project completion. Um, the benefit of environment and social protection to the developer needs to be introduced and made clear at the bidding stage. Additionally, I think that the legislation, especially the EIA legislation, tends to be strong towards environmental prote protection. But as we were saying earlier, it's insufficient in protection of livelihoods of communities um, within where the pro project would be um, implemented. Uh, there's not sufficient attention to matters of involunt involuntary resettlement, compensation of affected uh, project persons, especially for the poor and vulnerable persons, it tends to be to be low, and there's a lack of properly worked out restoration measures post um, Im implementation. So these gaps, I've realized, they remain 
Um, because of the quality of local implementation capacity, additionally, institutional constraints and then the government agencies responsible for enforcement of these environment and social safeguards arrangements. And then secondly, I look at it at investor level. When an investor comes into a country where there's poor environment and social safeguards legislation, often enough it results in a negative impact on the environment and socially. Um, corrective measures can only be enforced through a strong legislative framework by the government. So when an investor comes in and realizes that the EIA legislation or you know your climate change policy doesn't have strong um, uh, actions towards protection of the environment and the um, livelihoods of, of people, the investor only looks at operational gains and income gains, and it tends to be that there is no enforcement of uh, environment and social compliance, especially where the government does not have that strong local implementation capacity and institutional it has institutional constraints. The third one, I look at it at financial institution level. I want to believe that funding agencies have designed these environment and social and governance frameworks and standards, which when there's sufficient incorporation of these measures from design to infrastructure, completion um, stages and post-construction and post-loan closure, it ensures continued safeguarding of the environment and, and the people. These agencies, they, they've really changed and they're, they're striving towards um, ensuring there's sufficient time, training, and resource to obtain good understanding of environment and social safeguards by the borrowers. Um, however, at the end of it all, it is the government, gov government that needs to really ensure that on the capacity and institutional side, that monitoring and that compliance can be ensured. Mm -hmm. So, uh... Are you being political correct? You say institutional constraints. What do you mean by that? What constrains our institutions? Is it lack of political will? Is it lack of uh, skilled manpower? Or, or is it lack of finance? What, what does this, what is your experience of the nature of uh, institutional constraints? It, I, my, my thinking is we, we always make it look so good on paper in terms of monitoring and capacity building. But when it comes to skilled manpower, that's where on the ground compliance, that's where we are lacking. We say every infrastructure of a certain amount that consumes a certain amount of power, water, uh, extracts um, raw materials and resources must have uh, an EIA um a complete EIA that is filed, that is disclosed to the community. But you know, within that disclosure, putting it in the newspaper running for those 21 days, who reviews that paper that really is going to be impacted? If I put it in a kotla, um, and then I put a notice on the news, daily news, and or I put it on the notice board, the person who should be reading that is the person in the community where they're going to be impacted, whether positively or negatively. However, it's in a language, it's a 300 or 400 page document, which um, 
the person in the village, it, it, it's in a language they can't, they, they most likely cannot understand. It's in technical uh, language which they cannot uh, understand. There's no summary in their local language. Secondly, when it comes to implementation, we don't have sufficient skilled manpower sitting perhaps, let's say, at the Department of Environmental Affairs or at the Department of Pollution uh, Control that are on the ground picking up that EIA document, which has the monitoring or, or the, the management plan, going through the management plan and saying, the developer was meant to have this particular um, 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 person employed to manage these potential impacts. Is this person hired? But um, in addition, they produce this much waste. Uh, they said this is how they're going to ensure that they comply. Are they complying? Going on the ground, going into that building, ensuring that those measures are in place. We don't have people on the ground checking. If a mining company, if a filling station, if a pharmaceutical a pill packaging company is actually putting together, is it really ensuring that that management plan is being implemented? I cannot say that more than 10%. I, I, well, I don't know, but my feel is that if I went to the Department of Environmental Affairs and I said, show me where you've been to monitor that these impacts per project are not uh, affecting the community or uh, polluting the environment, I don't know how much of that is public enough for me to view. And I don't know if, in fact, there is that protection of the environment and of the livelihood of the people. Yeah. So as you speak, I I envision and, and, and I'm reminded that when uh, the government or a private company uh, undertakes a major infrastructure development, inevitably there is uh, an influx of people who, out of poverty or sheer ambition, or because they are entrepreneurial, perceive that around that economic ecosystem, there'll be opportunities. And I wanted to just find out from you, is there a correlation then between this influx and some of the problems that necessitate putting social safeguard measures in place? Absolutely, absolutely. Where there's high poverty and opportunity for employment, there will always be mass human migration to where a project is being implemented on the ground. Where outside labor is introduced into a community, it's expected that issues of transmittable diseases, increased teenage pregnancy, high increases of gender-based violence, compromised security, displacement of people may take place. And Often enough in line with EIA Act and legislation, it's encouraged that to minimize high influx of outside labor, then employment is created. It ha Employment has to be created. A certain percentage has to come from the community members where the project is being implemented. This can achieve through skill, can be achieved through skill training of the locals. However, specialized skills may need to be brought in. Um, and you know, to, to then manage those risks associated with within migration. But migration where managed can also create opportunities for economic grain. 
again, where migrants purchasing power of local products increases household income within the community, or occupation of local infrastructure like housing also translates to an income for the locals. Therefore, it may be you, you may find within like an environment and social impact assessment, an international contractor is required to not build a worker's living camp, but rather that they rent housing from locals as the suggested balancing mitigation measure proposed to boost local um, economic growth. Within the management plan, at the same time, it's necessary to then ensure that post-construction that those non-local return to their duty stations or their country of, of origin. And this is often not monitored sufficiently post-projection, uh, project construction phases. So I, I, I think also perhaps because, it, you know, it, I don't know, in, in the developed world, um, there has been transparency in sharing social and environmental risks and challenges, we're able somehow to ensure in safeguarding um, that high influx of, of people that we can we can use those practices and apply them to find a balance of, of the the social negative social impacts that I I highlighted earlier on. Sure. I have two last questions for you, and I want you to be brief with these. The first is some donors uh, have sometimes withdrawn from funding projects because of what they perceive to be the absence of adequate social safeguards. Can you rationalize this for us from a development perspective? What is the rationale? When correctly incorporated, I think environment and social protection and management strategies at design stage of projects um, you know, for, these are meant to be for achievement of sustainable performance of a project if it's achieved. So failure to incorporate the environment and social at the design and feasibility stage, it produces a risk to a financier. Um, you know, as, as financial, financial performance of the project is also affected, putting money towards, I think, putting money towards a project which may potentially violate human rights or degrade the environment or complete a, a natural resource is not considered aligned with many financial institutional objectives who are driving towards the achievement of, of SDGs. You have many scholars who have demonstrated clearly that performance long-term um, is, is impacted um, if there is not measures in place that are focused on environmental and social protection. And this is corporate fin financing. Companies with poor environmental management systems have incurred high um, costs of debt, uh, lower bonds, issuer ratings of the institution, and therefore financial institutions such as an institution I consult for, like the World Bank and UNDP, as well as some companies in the in the country, Botswana Development Corporation, have put together environmental um, management systems and frameworks that are somehow are meant to commit to full consistency and uh, co compliance with environment and social management systems throughout project lifespan. 
um, because they realize that there's a financial saving incurred when these measures are in place. Yeah, so so it's not just about um, uh, the 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 human rights thing. It's also because developmentally it's not sustainable because it is is counterproductive to the end state. But also it places the very finance at risk. And being bankers, they naturally have to mitigate that. So a final quick question. Now, what what how how do social safeguards address the post project stage uh you know risk um there's sufficient support towards uh, I, i'll speak to it um looking at two points um on on the government side i i i think it's still weak in post project completion in that we're not, we don't have uh, sufficient um, measures in place to really monitor post post project completion now at operation or even at decommissioning stage. We're not monitoring sufficiently to ensure that safeguards are, uh, 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 there's compliance to safeguard. But where there is international funding where the, the, the borrower um, has to comply with environmental and safe, uh, social safeguards. There's sufficient support towards a borrower's budget incorporating environmental and social costing to ensure that safeguard management capacity and um, responsibilities are included. For social safeguards in particular, early establishment of a clear stakeholder engagement plan a grievance redress mechanism way before the land acquisition and groundbreaking start um, have to be clear and functional. So these are ways of safeguarding post uh, um, construction. Um, and, and so you would have identified what the needs of the community are before you even start. So at the end, you know what you have to have put in place um, to safeguard that the livelihood of 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 the of of the community and social analysis to 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 determine poverty gender livelihood restoration expectations especially as 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 well as special care to vulnerable groups um, have to be considered and these are measures that these lending institutions have and and enforce at early stages of planning this is why these um I believe these funding agencies require, you know, local resident staff with good knowledge of policy requirements, uh, as well as incorporation of indigenous knowledge and practices to support project implementation units within government during project implementation. So the only way is to have is to have local staff, um, if it's an international agency, and if it's government, it's to ensure past implementation at decommissioning or at operation stage. There is um, people on the ground, skilled man, manpower on the ground to enforce that there is compliance to environment and social safeguards. That's fantastic. Well, seeing and seeing your namesake would have been proud. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> the Shilakam Extractive Podcast. I've, I've learned Thank a lot you. from you. Thank you for having me on the Shilakama Podcast. It's a great honor to be on this particular one given your experience in in the development sector so I really appreciate the invite.